Welcome, everybody. Gather all my accoutrements. My name is Johnny Morrison. I'm one of the pastors here. As Heather said, and as Isaac said, if you're new, welcome. So good to have you. If you're not new, hey. <laughs> just, just joking. It's great to have you, too. I always feel like you get totally missed, you know? We're so excited about everybody else. Excited about you, too. As Heather said, we have been in a series walking through the Psalms of Lament. And these are these uh, cries of protest, of pain, of uh, tragedy that the people of Israel, in the midst of crisis, in the midst of a difficult moment, they would gather together and they would have these communal words. And they were a way of saying together that something is not right in the universe and we need God to be present to us in the midst of that, that something is not right in our life, that something is not right in the world around us, and we need God to be present. We don't know what that means. We don't know what to do with that. Like, we don't know how to manage that or navigate that, but we need God to be present to us in the midst of that. And so we've been walking through these different psalms, and I think underneath, like, all of the things that we've hoped for and prayed for, the primary hope and prayer of the series is to lead us into being the people of Jesus in the midst of hard things. Because that's what the Psalms of the Men are for. It's these people of God who are gathering together, and they're like, we don't know what to do with this tragedy or this crisis or this just confusion. And so we're going to try to beseech God, ask him to be present to us as we navigate this difficult and complicated circumstance. And so the truth is, is that's what we want, is to say we don't always know what it means or how or, or, or what to do in the midst of terrible moments or confusing moments or hard moments or even mundane moments. So what does it look like to be the people of God in each of those spaces? What does it look like to be a people who trust God or who at least attempt to trust God? What does it look like to be people who name pain rightly, who give ear to other people's pain? What does it look like to make space for one another that is a space defined by God's presence? What does it mean to be the people of God in the midst of all of life, in the celebrations and the joys and the downs and also the middles and every other dimension of space that you happen to live in? Like, what does it mean to be God's people in those places? And today we are wrapping up that series with Psalm 85. And so if you would, grab a Bible and open up to Psalm 85. The verses will also be on the screen if that is your preferred mechanism for reading. Psalm 85. These are the words of the psalmist, starting in verse 1. It says, Lord, you were favorable to your land, and you restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God, of our salvation, and put away your indignation towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again? That your people may rejoice in you. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people. To his saints, 
But let them not return back to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Missy, let's pray one more time and then we'll dive in. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that more than anything else, it is a word of peace. That even in the midst of difficult moments or confusing moments or, or just mundane moments, that you are speaking a word of peace, a word of righting the wrongs of this world, a, a word of homemaking. Thank you, God, that you are always at work making a home for your people and for you. Lord, let us hear your words today. Let us be drawn into your story and then sent out of here, your people, regardless of where we find ourselves. In your name we pray. Amen. So if you've been with us the last couple of weeks and looked through the last couple of psalms that we have been in, then you know that most of the psalms that, that constitute the psalms of lament happened during a moment in Israel's history called conquest and exile. So the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, which is actually two at this moment, they get conquered by these foreign powers. So The northern kingdom of Israel is conquered by Assyria and assimilated into their people group and basically stops existing altogether. The southern kingdom of Judah is conquered by Babylon and then forcibly removed from their homeland and led into exile into Babylon. And these moments constitute like a level of tragedy and trauma in the life of Israel that affects every part of who they are, every dimension of their existence, from their identity, how they understand themselves, to their purpose, like why they understand they exist in the world, to their relationship with God. They often ask, God, have you forsaken us? Have you left us? Have you abandoned us? Because this moment can only happen if you're allowing it to happen. And so as they're lamenting this moment, it's, it's questioning everything they are. Like, who are we in light of this tragedy? And one of the ways that they like to summarize this or to get at this is to talk about a loss of the land. That we have lost the land, that we have been removed from the land, that we have somehow lost our inheritance, which is another language for land. And that's because Israel's story and their identity and their theology, it's like all tied up in this understanding of land. Their story begins with the promise of land. Abraham is called into relationship with God and sent to get a land, to make a home in a new land. The Exodus is about God rescuing the people of Israel from Egypt and sending them into a land. The early books of the Bible, like Joshua, is about taking the land and making it into a homeland. Judges is about how they fail to take the land and they need to like do some things in order to make it a homeland. Even like the hope of the early kings is all that they're going to protect the land. They're going to make it into a land, make it into a home. You could say that like the first like six or seven books of the Bible are almost entirely about land. There's one Old Testament professor who says that if you just measure out the statistical promises of God in the Bible, then land is the dominant one. It features most dominantly in the promises of God to the Old, to the Old Testament people. Right? And so as you hear land, for Israel, it's, it's like a catch-all phrase to say like, this is our hope. This is our identity. This is how we understand ourselves. We understand ourselves in relationship to God. 
via the land. And when the exile happens, they lose that. They lose this thing that was central to their identity and hope. I was trying to find, like, what is a modern referent for this kind of thing? And I think, like, if you're a refugee and you're fleeing a war-torn country, that's probably a close referent. Syria or Yemen, you're, you're leaving a country because it's no longer safe. But maybe the best modern referent is the Trail of Tears, where a people group were forced off their land and removed somewhere else. Were a place that they had like a connection to and identity to and history with and heritage with. They were forced off of that space and sent somewhere else without any understanding of if they'd get it back or any hope of getting it back or any notion of, of what might happen to them. But this is what happens to Israel with the exile. They lose their home. And so the last couple of psalms that we have looked at have focused on lamenting that Israel lost their home and all of the things that came with it, which is what makes this moment so interesting. Because Psalm 85 begins, Lord, you were favorable to your land. And you restored the fortunes of Jacob. Whereas the previous psalms have been written before the exile, this psalm comes at the end of the exile. So Israel has spent approximately 70 years in a foreign land, foreign territory, and now they get to go home. And they're celebrating that they get to go home in these first three verses. It's like, God, you remembered our land. You were favorable to us. You're restoring our fortunes. You forgave our iniquity. You covered our shame like your anger is no longer directed towards us. We get to go home. The war is won. Peace is established. Like, we get to go home. And you're like, oh, this is going to be great. Like, this is going to be a praise psalm. And then you get to the gap between verse 3 and 4. And you think that, like, maybe this is a moment to catch your breath, and then you realize, like, oh, no, no, we're just at the top of a roller coaster that is going way down. Because immediately after they celebrate, the psalmist writes, Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation or your wrath towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. What is happening in that moment? Israel got to go home. Like, isn't the war over? Isn't peace established? Like, aren't they saved? Shouldn't the lament be over? Well, the issue is that Israel is home. But the home they returned to is not the one they remember or the one they hoped for. Israel does get to go home, but the home that they find themselves in is not the one that they had been dreaming about in Babylon. It is not the one they had been praying for in exile. And there's these two books in in the Bible that tell the story of the return that do a beautiful job presenting what Israel returns to. And the first one is Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, is this, he's this guy who's living in Persia. Persia takes over Babylon, and so he's living there when all the people of Israel start, uh, as refugees, start heading back to, to Jerusalem. And he hears what's going on in Jerusalem, and he summarizes it this way. He says, The city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins. 
and its gates have been destroyed by fire. He's telling that to the king of Persia because he's hoping that the king will send him home so he can go be of help. But he says, the city, the place that we hoped for, the the, the thing that we longed for, it is war-torn. The city is destroyed. The walls are gone. It has been set fire to. It is a desolate space. And the refugees who have returned there suffer because there is no infrastructure or homeland to live in. It has been destroyed. It is in ruins. The second book that tells of the story of them returning is the book of Ezra, which is about the rebuilding of the temple. People of Israel, their temple has been destroyed. The place where they encountered God is gone. And so they're like, okay, let's rebuild it. And so they begin to do the work of rebuilding it, and they start to lay the foundations. But as they do, well, they lament. The book of Ezra records it this way, saying, But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. So the people who remember the home, they remember the majesty of God's temple. They remember how beautiful it was and how marvelous it was and how amazing it was. They're weeping because they know that it's not going to be that way again. Because the home that they have returned to is not the home they remember. Because the home that they have returned to is not the one they have hoped for. Because the home they have returned to is not the one they dreamed of. Because their exile ended only for them to find themselves strangers and exiles in their own land. See, and that is the tension and the question of Psalm 85. What do we do when pain and hardship has reshaped our world? What do we do when the dust settles and we do not know where we are? When we thought the moment was over or the event was over or the confusion was over and we exit out of that like haze into a space that we don't recognize, that is not familiar to us, even though we're in a space that should be familiar to us. What do we do when we feel homeless in our own home? What do we do when we feel homeless in our own home? home. One of the reasons that we wanted to do this series is because we just don't feel like we have a lot of tools for managing any of the process of like suffering, lament, confusion, hardship, or even unknown. It's like none of this, none of this part of our life do we have good tools for. And so the moment that you're like, you're moving towards something bad, we don't have great tools for. The moment of, we don't have great tools for, But I think one moment we especially don't have great tools for is what happens after. And one of the reasons that we don't have good tools for for trying to figure out life after some kind of confusion or uncertainty or tragedy is that it is so hard to see it because it happens under the surface of most of our lives. We return home, but now we return home to a place that is different. We return back to our normal lives, but there's like a vacuum there that is changing the pressure of that environment And it's not always noticeable or able to, like, put your finger on it, but it is different. And so we're always trying to figure out what does it look like to live life in light of these things? How now do we live that this event has occurred? 
Maybe the easiest place and most difficult place to experience this in is in the trauma of death. If you ever lost somebody, then you know that the moment of loss is chaotic. Right? Somebody dies, and then all of a sudden, it's busy. And it, and it will take your breath away how busy and complicated that moment can be. You're engaging with like funeral people, you're making plans, you have family calling you, friends are calling you, people are bringing you meals, it's busy and it's rushed. And that continues for a couple of days. And all of a sudden the funerals happened and then the meals stop coming and the phone calls stop coming and the family leaves town. And where life had like sped up to a crazy rate, all of a sudden now it halts back down to just normal pace and you have to say, how do I live now that this person's not there and that space isn't filled with busyness? Like the hard question of how do we live is now being asked. And you see it in other places too, not just in death, but you see it when somebody gets out of an unhealthy relationship. Like that's a good thing. And yet you still have to ask the question, well, how now do I live? Like I had identity connected to this and I had history connected to this and my friendships were connected to this and I don't, how now do I live in this new space? You've been wounded emotionally. Like how now do I live? How do I trust? How do I move towards people? How do I make sense of like my woundedness and the experiences around me? If you marry into a family with kids, like, again, that's good and worthy of being celebrated, but you still have to ask the question, like, that's such a big moment. How now, I, how now do I live in this? Because life is totally different, and I am unfamiliar with this new space, and I'm unfamiliar with the tools to navigate this new space, and I don't know what to do here. So how now do I live in these unfamiliar new spaces? For Israel, that is both a physical issue and an emotional issue. It's true in all of those ways for them. Like, they enter into a city that's infrastructure is literally destroyed. So they don't know, like, where do I stay? Where do I buy things? Where do I get toilet paper? And they also don't know, like, where is God in this? And what do I do with people in this? And, like, how do I navigate my emotional feelings of, of hope and despair in this? What do I do now that I feel unfamiliar in a familiar space? I think culturally we have a couple of options that we're given, the two wide roads of how we can handle this. I think one option is just get over it. We just get over it. And I think something about that impulse is really positive. Like we don't like being stuck. Maybe this is an American thing, or maybe it's a Western thing. I don't know what it is. We don't like being stuck. So we always want to be driving towards something. We always want to be moving towards something. And, there, and there's an impulse there that I think is really beautiful and good and right. We're always driving and encouraging and trying to accomplish something new. And so in this moment, we're like, oh, I don't want to be stuck here. I don't want to mourn here for too long. And so we, we go. So we give ourselves limits, like limits to how long we can mourn something, limits to how long we can live in a space that is uncomfortable and difficult. But the problem is that we are literally trying to rebuild a life from the pieces of an old one. So we don't know what it takes to move forward. So just simply getting over it doesn't deal with the dislocation or the homelessness. It just removes it and ignores it and hides it and puts it somewhere else. The other option that we have often is just give into it. 
We can define ourselves and justify our lives by whatever has occurred. Right, so we use the hard experiences to justify insecurities or the terrible actions so we don't have to own that. We don't have to be complicit in the ways that we actually hurt other people because we can just make sense of it all by saying, oh, you can't handle my pain and that's why you don't like live with me. When the truth is that I'm lashing out at you and the truth is I'm hurting you but I can justify all of that by saying like, oh yeah, you just don't get it. You can't live with me in it. You can't endure my hardship. But the issue is that both of these strategies fail to deal with our actual sense of homelessness, our sense of dislocation. This week, uh, I had a really cool week. My basement flooded, and then my furnace got knocked out by the basement flooding. So there's just like space heaters like piled up in my house, because it also happened to decide to be winter again this week. And I feel like I have two options, right, in how I handle the flooding of my basement. I can just ignore it, which is an impulse that I have, just to, like, shut the door, turn the lights off, and be like, nothing is wrong down there. (laughs) Right, and and, and I could do that, and I could continue making life happen, and I could continue pursuing things, and I could continue just getting over it. But the problem is that ignoring the damage done underneath continues to do damage. And if we try to build a home on top of the wreckage of an old one, we will always be haunted by that old history. And eventually, just like water damages a foundation, it will damage the foundation of whatever new home we're building. You have to deal with it. You have to engage with it. You have to work through it. You cannot leave that there. The other impulse that I had when dealing with my flooded basement was just to just give up. I got home Monday night from California at like four in the morning, and that's when I found the flooding basement. It was like just, it's a dirt basement, there's mud everywhere, and I was like, I'm just going to lay here. Just let the house collapse. It's 50 years from now or whatever. Right, and that is an option too. We can just give into it. I have a good friend who I think was legitimately wounded at one point in their life, legitimately dislocated at one point in their life. But now on this side of it, they use that experience to justify their actions. And so they push people away. They lash out at their friends around them. They continue to isolate themselves. And all of it, they justify by their woundedness. But the problem is that in doing that, they further dislocate themselves from other people. They continue to isolate themselves from other people. They continue to dislocate themselves from God and even themselves. And so that very feeling they're trying to deal with, which is why do I feel homeless in my own home? Well, they're actually making worse by continuing to push the people and God away who make a home a home. Right? Both of those strategies fail to deal with our homelessness, and instead they dislocate us further. One, over time, but both dislocate us and instead of giving us roots. So what do we do in that sense? What is the thing that we do when we feel dislocated and homeless and we're trying to figure out how to, how to build a life out of this? What do we do with that? I think Psalm 85 begins to guide us And in part, it guides us by inviting us to lament. 
That's what Psalm 85 is. It is a lament of this confusion and the circumstances that Israel finds themselves in. And so the first thing they do is to lament the reality around them, to name what they're experiencing, to give voice to what they're experiencing. So Israel gathers together. They enter into a new lament and they begin to seek God's presence. Where culture so often tells us to get over it, Israel instead invites God to be a part of it. And this is what makes lament so different than giving in, which I think is one of the reasons that we're hesitant to lament because we're worried that it is a, it's a way of giving into it. It's like a selfish action. We're like, we don't want this to be more about us and we don't want more of the, of the attention to be focused on us and we don't want to live in our pain and we don't want to justify our pain. And so we're like, we're not going to lament because that's selfish. But lament is the opposite of selfish. Instead of drawing the story to be about us, lament is a way for us to direct our gaze back towards God in the midst of our confusion, to say, we don't know what to do with this, and we don't know how to process this, and we don't know how to experience this, so God, would you be a part of it? Because we don't know what else to do. We are utterly dependent. See, lament is a way of humbly approaching God and saying, we actually don't know what to do. We are dependent upon you. We are desperate for you. We need you to be a part of this process with us. We need you to be a part of our life. The other way that lament is different is so often when we try to get over pain, we forget that people around us are lamenting with us. Or they're in it with us. They're experiencing this too. And so when we decide that we're just going to get over whatever we're experiencing, more often than not, we just run over the people around us who are trying to figure out how to process their own confusion. We don't create space for them. Instead, we run their story over, we run their narrative over, and we don't give them a moment to breathe. But lament creates space both for God to be present in our own circumstances and for people around us. Lament creates space for God and for others. It gives voice to our own pain and to others' pain. It asks people to join us with us in our pain, and it also gives us a way of being attentive to the pain of other people. And when we do that, when we start to create space for God and others in our life, what we might find is that we will start to be attentive to the voices that are speaking in that moment, both to the voices that you're speaking to me and to the voice that God is speaking in that moment. And if we're attentive, what might we hear God say? Look at verse 8. The people of Israel are lamenting together. They're gathering together. They're making space for God's presence. And they say, let me hear what God the Lord will speak. What does he speak? He speaks peace to his people, to his saints. If we make space for God, we might hear him speak a word of peace to us. In Scripture, peace does include comfort, like interpersonal comfort. It does include that. Like nice, like a, like a kindness to one another, it includes that. But peace, the way that God is using it here, is shalom, which means that something is being righted, that something is being fixed, that something is wrong in the world, and, and, and there's going to be something done about that wrongness, that there is a sense of dislocation and homelessness, and God is going to do something about that, that he is going to turn it into a home. So if we're attentive, we might hear God speak a word of peace. And what does that word of peace look like? 
Well, it says in verse 9, Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. What does that mean? Well, glory is a reference to the presence of God. Because God's presence is said to be heavy, to have like a, a magnitude to it, a weightiness to it. And so they'll describe the presence of God as glorious. There's something about it that is substantial and weighty and heavy. His glory, his presence was to rest in the temple. And so this moment is like God is going to speak shalom. He's going to speak a word of home to the people of Israel. How? Oh, he's going to dwell with them. He's going to move into the neighborhood. He's going to make a home with his people, Israel, in the midst of homelessness, in the midst of dislocation, in the midst of confusion. God is going to move into that space with his people. He's going to dwell there. Now, the people of Israel, what they think that means is that God's going to restore the temple, which in a way it does mean that. But they had no moment in this psalm how big that hope or that promise was. And it gets picked up when we come to the New Testament. And if you look at John 1.14, the exact same language gets used. It says, And the Word, who is Jesus, became flesh and what? Dwelt among us. And we have seen his what? His glory. The presence of God is with us. Glory is of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word of peace that was spoken to Israel all those years ago, hundreds of years ago, was that God was going to move into the neighborhood, that he would enter into this inhospitable space and make it into a home, that he would absorb the hostility of it and the difficulty of it and the suffering of it into himself, into himself and he would create space for his presence to meet his people. What does God do to our sense of homelessness? Well, he moves into it and makes a home there? What does God do to our sense of dislocation? Oh, he locates himself in it. He becomes present in it. This is what we're celebrating today. If you don't know, today is Palm Sunday, which is the day that we remember Jesus riding on a donkey to enter into Jerusalem, and he's hailed as a peasant king. And that's true, Jesus is a king. He's building a kingdom, a home for his people. So he enters into Jerusalem. But what the people of Israel can't understand is what kind of home that is going to be. So they want that to happen through violence and coercion. But instead, Jesus absorbs violence into himself in order to make space where his people and his presence might meet even the people who reject him could experience grace in him. And on Palm Sunday, Jesus is hailed in celebration and as a king, but just a few days, he will not be celebrated or praised. Instead, he will be shamed. And what does he do in each of those moments? Oh, he makes space for people. They reject him, and he says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. And every single moment, Jesus creates space for his people. He builds a home there. He enters into it. What does God do in the midst of our dislocation and homelessness? He moves into it. In fact, God moves into it before we do. 
We're asking God to be attentive to us. And what we, learn, what we realize is that God is actually already there before we ever get there, that he goes before us and then he begins to prepare a home for us. And when we are there, he invites us to join him in the homemaking work. This is always what God has been doing. And it's how he always works. He enters into difficult places and begins the work of making a home. And then he calls us to join him. Just look at all of scripture. The Bible begins with this story. Genesis 1, what? God creates a home. He creates humans. And he says, make a home of it. Genesis 12, God calls Abraham into a foreign land. And what does he say? I'm going with you to make a home in this unfamiliar and strange place. God goes to the people of Israel in, in, in Egypt, and he says, hey, I'm going to go with you, and I'm going to give you a new home. Be a part of homemaking with me. Israel loses the land in the exile, and God still says, when you enter into this foreign land, build home. Seek the welfare of the city. Make a home there, because I will be with you. When Israel returns from exile and goes back home, what does he say? Make a home, for I am with you. This is true in the Old Testament. It's all the way true into the New Testament. Jesus calls the church to make a home. There's this uh, Bible scholar named Scott McKnight, and he picks up this theme of land, and he applies it to the church. And I think he says something really helpful. He says, we should see the local church as the land promise, the promise of home, taking root in new territory. Or is the land promise expanding into the Roman Empire? Or you could say into the American Empire. Or you could say into the European Empire. That God has equipped his church and sent them and called them into unexpected, unfamiliar, and often hard places. But he has always gone with them to make a home there. That's the mission of the church. To make a home in difficult and unexpected and hard spaces because God is doing it with them. And this is true of all of us. Some of us are coming out of something that feels confusing or difficult, and we're entering into, into a new phase in our life where we're asking, how now do we live? But this, this mission is true of every single one of us, because the Bible would call every one of us strangers and exiles in a foreign land. Right, because the death and resurrection of Jesus, it has done something. And now all of us live in this kind of like weird space where we're like, well, this isn't the world that God is creating. And so we have to figure out, well, how do we live in light of this world with the one that we know God is doing? So how do we live? It's homemakers. A people who are trying to create space of welcome and God's presence for others. This is what we practice as we gather around the table. Where God has given us a taste of where he meets us as we meet other people. It's literally a place to practice homemaking, gathering in the table, meeting God, and being in relationship with others. We practice it as we invite others into our home around our table. Gather around people, try to make spaces where God's presence might meet others. We practice it as we reconcile difficult relationships. In each of these moments, we are doing the hard work of homemaking. Anytime we try to create space for God and others. And this is especially true in events over the long haul. We try to do the hard work of homemaking that is a long work of homemaking. 
when we choose to love in the midst of pain or homemaking. Choose to forgive again and again, we're homemaking. Choose to parent as a widow, homemaking. We choose to be generous when we've been marginalized again and again and again, homemaking. Creating space where God's presence might meet other people, that's homemaking work. We, when we began this series, um, I told a lot of stories about how my dad died when I was a kid. In the process of like learning to lament throughout that whole process, when I was 11, my mom remarried. Uh, it's right over there. And uh, I didn't tell you I was going to tell you this, so hopefully it's okay. <laughs> and uh, yeah, my mom remarried when I was 11, and uh, my dad, he stepped into what has got to be the strangest and most complicated and inhospitable of homes you could possibly imagine. I am 11. I'm like, I'm like right up in puberty. I am a bundle of paradoxes and emotions and feelings and anger and homework. And, and he's stepping into all of that, right, with the difficulty of my actual life and, and the complication of my actual life and just the reality that I'm a middle schooler and that's a terrible place to be. And so for a four-year-old single man, I have to look as close to a nightmare as you can possibly imagine. And what does he do? Well, he married my mom and began the work of homemaking. He did homework endlessly. He absorbed the very worst of my hurt and anger and turmoil and preteen angst. He gave and he gave and he gave of himself so that I might respond in kind, he made a home for a kid who felt homeless. And that is the work of Christian homemaking. It is the hard work of entering into inhospitable places and cultivating them with love. It is the work of showing up and forgiving and asking for forgiveness and doing it again. The psalm ends with the picture of what happens when we begin to live this kind of life, when we begin to try to participate in this. And it says, verse 10, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land, our home, will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. When we join God in the work of homemaking, we're participating in making this thing. Now, the hard part of that is that no matter what we do, and no matter how hard we work, and no matter what we put into this, like this picture is a future hope. We'll never actualize that. We live in this like weird in-between space. Where we're trying to make a home a little bit more like that, make earth a little more like heaven, and also longing for something else and hoping for something else. But yes, we make spaces that are beautiful and life-giving, but it does not undo the heart. And this too is the role of lament. Lament helps us create space here for God and others, but it also points us towards our ultimate home. The writer of Hebrews summarizes this tension just so beautifully. 
And the writer of Hebrews, they, they retell the story that we've just walked through, the story of homemaking and of different people and of different moments of entering into unfamiliar lands and trying to figure out what to do there. And, and he just, they summarize it in that tension and hope that is all of our experiences we homemake. And so I'm just going to read you this chunk of scripture from Hebrews. It says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going, but by faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac Jacob, heirs of the same promise. They went to somewhere they didn't know, somewhere that was unexpected because God called them to go there. So a new place. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the AIDS, since she considered him faithful who had promised. So that like Abraham, Sarah enters into an unknown space. She is challenged to build a home in a way that she doesn't understand or can't explain. But they all died in faith. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. You can try get over, you can try give into it, you can always do that, but as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has what? Prepared a home for them. Because he is always before them. Missio, we live in this tension. We join God in the work and hope of homemaking, hoping for a home that will undo the heart. That's what it means to be the church. People who enter into exile and out of love of Jesus make space of welcome, always pointing towards. So the questions for us right now is as we're gathered together and as we're about to leave this space, well, what do we do? What do we do with these things? And so I just want to give you a couple of questions to reflect on as you come to the table. And hopefully they'd be questions that you'd leave this moment with, but specifically questions that would direct you to the table. And think about them in light of the things you've been lamenting over the last few weeks. Each week we've, you know, kind of invited into processing and lamenting with each other. So we've named it as a community, and then we've written it on cards and laid it on the table. We're going to engage that again at Good Friday. But so think through those laments. And in that space... Where do you feel homeless and dislocated? Let me say, how have those things made you feel homeless and dislocated? What feels unfamiliar, though you're in a familiar space? Where do you need to lament 
that sense of homelessness to lament again because you've done the lament from the hard things that led you here. Do you need to name it again? Do you need to ask God to be present to you again in this unknown, confusing, unexpected place? Like, that's okay. You can lament again and again because God will be with you again and again and again. So where do you need to lament it again in order to create space for God and others in your life? Is there places where you're isolating, where you're pushing others away, where you're giving into it and disconnecting? Where do you need to lament it, to invite God and others to be a part of that moment with you? This isn't up there, but it might be important to include, like, who needs to be a part of that with you? Like, lament is a thing that we often do alone, so, like, who is a part of that suffering or that hardship or that confusion with you, and who do you need to invite into that process with you? Because like my dad did with me, that actually might be creating a home. And finally, where do you most long for God's home or for that better country that Hebrews promises? Because it's that vision of that thing that's coming that so empowers the work that we're doing right here. So take those questions, and as we pray and as we sing, be like working through those questions, but more than anything else, Missy, would you bring those questions to this table? Because it's the moment that we practice the homemaking work that God is doing. Where we entrust, respond to God's presence. Like he's here with us. He's meeting us. He's always meeting us. And, and this moment is one where he's like, hey, I will meet you. So we respond to the presence of God. We make room for it at this moment. And then we do it together with others around us. So would you bring those questions right here to the table and practice the work of homemaking in the midst of homelessness. Practice being the people of Jesus. And let's pray. Father, thank you that you always go before us. There is literally not a moment in our life that you have not already moved ahead of us and prepared a home for us, that you know what's happening, you know the circumstances around us. We are not stuck, we are not isolated, we are not alone, you are with us. Calling us into something. So God, help us to experience the home that you're making and join with you in the work of homemaking creating space where we experience you and invite others to experience you. God, do that right now. As we gather on this table, as we sing your songs, as we meet with others, would you speak a word of peace, a word of home to each and every one of us so that we might leave here and speak words of peace through you to those around us. In your name we pray. Amen. Missy, when you're ready, we invite you to the table. Bread is gluten-free. The cup is non-alcoholic. Anyone who wants to experience Jesus is invited to this table. If you'd like to pray with somebody, there are people over here who would love to pray with you. So you can take those questions, you can work through them with them, or you can sing or pray with yourself or pray with other people around you. Whatever you do, would you try to be attentive to God's word of peace for you? Let's worship.